Hello folks and welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host Simon Ward and each week I'm joined by guests who share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your triathlon performance. As you folks begin your training plans in earnest to achieve this year's triathlon goals, I wanted to try and cut through a lot of the BS that's out there and provide you with some of the fundamentals that you should be focusing on. So this week, I'm joined by elite swim coach, Russ Barber. Russ has been coaching swimmers for what he says is 174 years, but it's probably not that long. He does, however, have an extensive resume of working with elite swimmers And in recent months, he's been working as a swim specialist for British Triathlon, specifically with the performance squad at Leeds Triathlon Centre. Russ is a fellow Yorkshireman, so as you might expect, it's a down-to-earth conversation. Anyway, let's get cracking and hear from the man himself. Hey, welcome to the show, Russ Barber. How are you doing, Simon? I'm I'm great, thanks. And uh, it was a lovely surprise to see that you're back in Leeds now, because it's been a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, I seem to be just doing circuits around Yorkshire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think I'm not sure we worked directly together, but we were definitely working in the same program about 20 years ago for City of Leeds, weren't we? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Because I was uh, I was uh, the age group coach at uh, City of Leeds in from '97 to 2001, and I spent a lot of time working with. You know Terry Dennison there, and with with the elite group, and and you were certainly working with that group for a while, wasn't you? Yes, I was. I, I was working specifically with the guys and girls that were sort of you know expected to qualify for the Sydney Olympics at that time, and I was strength and conditioning specialist that Terry Terry brought in, and I think that was ahead of its time in sport. I know some there was like was it Alison Shepherd up in Newcastle? She used to do a lot of that's right. Um, yeah. Uh, was she a 400 meter swimmer? She used to do a lot of strength training, but not many swimmers did at that point. And uh, well, are you thinking of uh, Susan Rolf? Um, well, it might be. I thought it was Shepherd. I thought she was yeah. definitely from the northeast. Because yes. I, yeah. I remember seeing a, I remember seeing on one of the TV programs something about her lifting and doing some Olympic okay. lifting. Yeah. And I was really impressed with the fact that she could squat and clean and everything. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I was Very trying to, I was trying to, um, I was trying to teach the. Uh, um, the swimmers in Leeds, all of these Olympic lifts, and um, you know, we used to get the weights because if you remember the Leeds International Pool, the, the gym was downstairs. That's right. And I had this you. idea we used to do this, what was called kinetic training, where you could do um, a series of squats and then a series of box jumps, jumping onto a box, and yeah. then you would do a dive start. And so we used yeah. to um, have James Hickman doing that because he, he loved it, James, yeah. and uh, and then Terry would tie. <laughs> springy was springy yeah and so then he and then terry would uh, get the stopwatch out and time him to swim that sort of uh, um 17 or 18 meters from one side of the dive pit to the other um yeah. it was interesting actually because um i shared a house with uh ed hinchliffe who was yes. a diving coach at yes. and so we actually shared a house together for six years so even after i left leeds we stayed uh together in the same house for two years and um and you know, sharing ideas, you know. So I, I, obviously, the swimming side, we're we're very good at periodization aerobically, and, mm. and we understand the aerobic side of things naturally because that's eighty percent of what we do. Um, and obviously, Adi was an expert with with regards to the, the you know the power side, and um, 
Yeah. We used to compare notes all the time and, and it was really good actually because then when I moved to Sheffield, I had the same deal with the coaches at Sheffield. And so I've been quite lucky really for the last kind of 20 years, um, 25 years, I guess. Wow. I've been working on, alongside a great diving coaches, which is, uh, mm. is has been really, really helpful. And I think in certainly the early days before um, S&C became quite common within swimming, in the early days, we were quite ahead of the game with that, I think. Well, t- when I started, Terry had already instigated a little medicine ball circuit that they used to, mm-hmm. the swimmers used to do in that little triangle in front of the seats that were by the dive field. Do you remember? Yeah, and uh, there'd yeah. be all these medicine balls being thrown around, some a bit more <laughs> recklessly than others. And uh, but but even that in itself was um, you could sort of call it revolutionary, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's good days, good times. But I do, I do still remember having debates with Terry where he'd say, "I'm not." You know, I'm not sure of the benefit of this, but I think we'd probably be better off with it than without it. Yeah. And trying to think about where swimmers, because of course we had to convince the swimmers as well because it was a new thing, you know, because often they like, if somebody else is doing it, they'll pick up on it. But if nobody else is doing it, they'll sort of wonder why they are. And trying to convince them that, okay, it may not help you swim faster because Terry was always convinced that you could only move your hands so fast through the water. But of course, if you're swimming... Even 100 metres in a, in a long course pool, you've got the dive, which is critical, mm. and you've got the turn, mm. haven't you? So if you can get even tenth of a second out of each of those, that yeah. could be the difference between fourth and first, couldn't it? Absolutely. And it certainly was. If you look at, at um, Morales's win, in 1988 that you know that was less than a hundredth of a second you know so you know that that definitely could have been a start and definitely could have been turned and I think but I think it's interesting because this is kind of lends itself to some of the discussions I've been having with the coaches and the athletes within triathlon now is that obviously um, even the shortest distance triathlons are it would be classed as a middle and long distance event within swimming. Yeah. Um, and and so it's interesting that my concept coming in has been if we can try and raise the overall ceiling, the overall power ceiling and the overall speed ceiling, mm-hmm. even just for short speed, so that at the start of races they're they're not having to almost being fight and flight mode, <laughs> you know, yeah. to absolutely all out. If we can get some easy speed in that first kind of 75 metres and gain good position because we've raised the ceiling, um, then then again, that's another one of those, probably more than one percenters. It's probably a two or three percenter. And mm. so we, we've been spending a real lot of time on that since uh, in this last nine months is actually teaching the athletes great sprinting skills hmm. um to gain easy speed yeah. as well as the big endurance work you know hmm. and um you know, it seems to be seems to be working quite well actually I'm, i've been really happy with it so far well, well we'll come on to that in a moment just just going back to you know small margins and um be, between medals and not medals robin brew also missed out by a finger um, like, didn't he in uh, wow. Barcelona yeah. was it in that IM he'd come into the final as world record holder and then he came fourth 
um, yeah. you know, by a, by a fingernail. And again, that could have been a turn. It could have been a start. It could have been a, just not getting close enough to the turn and not getting the push off. Yeah. I mean, Robin was a powerful lad, so I doubt if he if he got his feet planted on the wall properly, he'd lose out in power. But yeah. um, I also remember reading something from Katie Ledecky's coach mm. um, with regard to the strength coach that they had. And he said, I'm not, I'm not trying to improve Katie's power. Um, although that will be helpful. He said, what I want the strength coach to do is help her to build a resilient body so she can turn up for swimming every time. Absolutely. Right. I want, yeah. I don't want her to have any shoulder pain because, you know, because she's, t- because she's not strong enough in the shoulders and she's overworking those muscles. I don't want to have any, any knee pain from the dive starts. I want to make sure she comes because that's where we're going to make the difference is in the pool. Without but making sure she turns up on poolside is down to resilience and framework. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, it's, I, it's just getting that balance right, isn't it? You know, between mm. you know what is going to help with resilience, what's going to help raise the, the speed ceiling, but what what we don't want is you know the muscles to harden. We don't want you know excess bulk or anything like that. And I think that that's you know we need to be able to convince people that that is absolutely possible. You know, yeah, you don't need you don't need bulk and you don't need big hard muscles to be able to be resilient and to be able to be fast. Mm. You know, you, you know, we can. There's 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 many ways to skin a cat, isn't there? And, and I think uh, yeah, I think we've got all the information to our to our fingers these days. Yeah, and I do I do think that um, th- there's a sort of misconception that if you can do more pull ups or or bench press more. And clearly, when you watch Ryan Lochte's swim, you know his, his strength training, where he's doing his CrossFit stuff and flipping yeah. tires and throwing kettlebells and all of that, you might think, well, that sort of stuff's good. But just because you can flip a tire or you can do ten pull-ups, that's not necessarily going to translate into faster swimming. It's right. just going to mean you're stronger. Um, yes. So there's a it, strength training is a tool mm, for triathletes for most of the time, and certainly probably for the people. Um, listening to this podcast who are recreational have got lots of other things to balance in their life. I would say that strength strength training for them is is more about that resilience and framework, making sure you don't get injured, making sure you yes. turn up for your training sessions. Yes. Um, but it, but it's a small part, and also mobility. I mean, we're going to talk. I think we're going to talk about that in the basic principles of swimming, body position in the water, and whether that creates drag or reduces drag. It's critical for all swimmers, isn't it? And so if you if you're too tight in the hips, if you're too tight in the shoulders, no amount of effort you spend trying to swim fast is going to overcome the drag you're creating by flapping your arms and legs everywhere. And and, and the honest truth is, you know, even at this stage in my career, I mean, I've been coaching about 174 years, I think, Simon. Now I think about, um, about the same length of time as I have. Yeah, <laughs> um, it feels know, like it. <laughs> the first, the first thing that I look for straight away, you know, when I go on deck, you know, literally within five minutes of of starting with the performance group in Leeds, and um, the first thing I was looking at was body position, and you know, because it's it's free speed, isn't it? Yeah, you know, just, just by readjusting body position, making sure that we're floating well, making sure that we reduce in frontal resistance, you know, for the same amount of power that you're putting into each stroke, you're going to travel a few centimetres further. Um, and um, and it's so, so, so to me, you know, even after all these years, it's the first thing I look at when, when, when I first stepped foot on poolside with a new squad. And what, in terms of body position, what are the, what are the obvious things that you notice I mean, I guess it's going to be less so in elite swimmers than it is in recreational swimmers. But still, 
when you're dealing with these guys now compared to who you've worked with before, you're dealing with triathletes. So they're going to have yeah. stiffer ankles. They won't be able to point their toes as much. They yeah. might be a little tighter around the lats because they're riding the bike and they're sort yeah. of hanging onto the handlebars. And so, yeah. um, yeah. so what, what are the key, what are the key differences you notice between triathletes and swimmers and what are the, what are the things that you're looking for? Well, I mean, there's, there's two or three really, really obvious things. You know, there's, there's a couple more advanced things, but the, the two or three obvious things is, is to make sure that the head is absolutely in a line with the spine. You know, so it's, it's making sure that it's almost like I use the analogy of a, a barbecue chicken skewer. You know that you know that you know you've got the you've got the chicken on the skewer, and if you were just to rotate from the top and the bottom, it just rotate around. Yeah. So there's that analogy with the with the athletes. You know that that your head needs to be in line, and almost as if there was a barbecue skewer skewer going straight through the top of your head, down your neck. You know, and 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 coming out, and um, you know that's absolutely what we used to try and do uh, in terms of of getting a, a good head position. So, in in terms of swimming in a pool, you really want to, when you're not breathing, you really want to be looking down at the base of the bottom of the pool, don't you? At that black line. Pretty much. I mean, I think if you if you think of the head, there's there's, there's two movements that we can have. There's there's the um, up and down movement, you know, which is like a nod, you know, if you're to be saying yes, no, is that mm-hmm. up and down movement, but also just by uh, bracing the, the back of the head backwards. And, you know, which if you were traditionally trying to give yourself a double chin, which I don't yeah. have a problem with, Simon, I don't know if you've noticed that, sir. But um, if you, as you pull your head back, if you're trying to give yourself that double chin, that's another plane of movement that we mm-hmm. need to get right. So if you've got a, 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 an athlete in the pool who is looking pretty much down, you know, I say you want to be looking down or diagonally downwards, but you need to make sure that the the back is, the, the, head, the back of the head is braced up towards the top of the surface so we haven't got a droopy uh, posture. So it's, it's the two... It's the two ranges of movement that we need to look at. So that chin poke thing is almost, it's is what you will actually see, I would guess. And it's probably more common these days than when you first started coaching Russ 174 years ago, <laughs> because a lot of people spend their time in front of computers. And if you've noticed when they do, they tend to, particularly as time wears on and they get more tired, they tend to poke their chin forwards. Absolutely. Peer into the computer. And it's a bad habit that Absolutely. everybody... Everybody that's listening to this podcast should just check themselves on this because I know I do it and you probably do it. And I would guess Without that most, doubt, I know I do. most most kids that are on the computers all the time and mm-hmm. on the phones will be poking the chin forward. So you talk about just not not, not tilt your head backwards or chin down. You're just talking about that double chin movement, aren't uh, you? Just, yeah. just pulling that chin inwards towards your, you know, towards your chest, pulling yeah. the back of your head up, and also making your head long, you know. You know, so so when we talk. The big difference in the and the terminology I use is that we're looking for aquatic alignment, not necessarily dry land alignment. You know, mm. so for aquatic alignment, you know, we're trying to make ourselves as long as possible. So almost imagine that somebody's got hold of the top of your head, yeah. making your neck nice and long and mm-hmm. pulling, pushing that chin in and then and looking diagonally downwards and forwards in the water. And so you know, quite often I'll stand at the side of the pool and use my stopwatch uh, um, cable, or the you know the the lace that's on the the stopwatch, and and draw it into a straight line. 
and superimpose it over the swimmers as they swim past me. And so that I can actually see that there's a straight line there, you know, right from the head, right through the back, right through the hips. And um, and that's the starting point for everything. And um, and so, you know, when it comes to mobility and when it comes to the any flexibility work that we might do, that's something that we spend a lot of time on. And it's really, really simple for, for all the listeners out there right now. It's just a case of, you know, finding, um, you know, laying down on the floor and, you know, putting the back of your head against the floor, making sure that your shoulders are against the floor, making sure that your hips are against the floor, and then slowly just tilting your hips to reduce that, that natural curve at the bottom of the back. I think the official term is a lordosis, I think. Um, and we're just trying to tilt those hips so that, so that the, there's a whole straight line between the back of the head shoulders, mid-back, and lower back, just by tilting those that pelvis a little bit. Quite interesting, that, Russ. I remember reading about Michael Phelps. One of the advantages he has is obviously he's got a long torso and shorter legs, but he's also got, he hasn't got particularly muscular glutes, which means that he doesn't have that bump. Like yes. you might, if you got a track sprinter, for instance, yes. yeah. um, you know, you can always look at the... Um, the track sprinters, particularly the African track sprinters, have got really powerful thighs and glutes. Yes. That would that would, you know, that would be a disadvantage to them in the pool, wouldn't it? And I mean, yes, this absolutely. is this is the compromise of triathlon, isn't it? Is that you've got yeah. people who are swimming who need aquatic alignment, but yes. they also need to develop muscles yeah. and are going to develop muscles which are useful for cycling and running. And that's that's, right. that's contrary to what we want for good po- um, pool posture. And I think it's one of those things where when I was when I'm working with elite swimmers that don't need that, then I'm very dictatorial about that. You know, say I want an absolute straight line and I don't want a gap between the bottom of your back and the floor. Whereas with the triathletes, it's a little bit more, you know, let, let's do it within reason, you know, and let's do it so that we can um, you know, flatten it out as much as possible, but mm-hmm. without um um, you know, causing any undue stress based on the fact that you have they have got much more glute development than than a, a normal swimmer would have. Going back to that head position, then, so we're talking about looking down or slightly ahead at the base of the pool. Mm. Um, I know from my own experiences in swimming that, particularly if I swim in open water a lot, um, I tend to lift my head higher. Now, you know, Newton's third law says that every action is going to have an equal and opposite action. So if I'm lifting my head higher and lifting my chin forwards to look up, there's going to be some, um, perhaps a negative effect in terms of swim alignment further back down. You know, maybe my hips are going to drop, maybe my legs are going to drop. Um, so how do we counter that then? For is it is it just a matter of reminding yourself when you're in the pool to look at uh, you know to keep your eyes on a specific spot rather than looking forward at the feet of the person who's swimming the lane in front of you? Yeah, and that's another thing, isn't it? Obviously, about triathlon because we do teach drafting and we're trying to get them as close to the to the athlete in front to make sure that they've got that draft um, and which would lend itself to you wanting to look forwards to just be how see how close you are to the athlete in front. Um, and 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 obviously that's a necessary part and and sighting and and it's a necessary part of 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 the sport, but obviously as much as possible on the strokes where they're not looking forwards and they're not sighting, we just need to try and maintain that 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 still head as much as possible. And I, and I just think it's a 
a coaching thing, Simon. You know that we just need to yeah. remind the athletes there there are some good drills that we can do to to to, to find that alignment, and also you know regular video analysis. You know so that it can they can analyze it themselves. Mm, so reinforcement of basic body position. So just reminding. So if there's a coach, if coaches are listening, just remind your athletes. You know everybody drifts off from there. Everybody drifts off from the perfect position. They might be able to do it when they're fresh or when they're thinking about it, and then they drift off. So you just have to remind them. And it, like you say, there are drills. Now I, I'm going to get onto drills in a minute because triathletes love doing drills to improve the technique. But half the time I see them doing badly, and yes. I see them doing stuff that really isn't going to actually help them. It's just yeah. somebody said, "Oh, you need to do this." trail fingers drill actually you're trailing your fingers along the water that's great in the pool but it ain't going to help you when you're facing a two-foot wave exactly um so we'll come back onto drills in a minute let's let's yeah. just finish off on basic principles and skills so we uh, and we'll talk about this later as well about how what percentage of your total swim volume is done in the pool versus the open water yeah. so basic swim principles you want good aquatic alignment you want the head in the right position you want the hips high you, yes. um you want the heels near the top of the water, but not breaking the surface of the water too much. Yeah. What what other basic principles carry across triathlon and swimming that that I think it's important for um, you know before you start worrying about whether your watch is working or whether the satellites are in orbit or what pace <laughs> you're swimming, just get these things right first because yes. without them, all that other stuff's going to be peripheral. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we need to look at the, the the next thing that I always look at. Um, once we've got uh, our, our alignment sorted out, is rotation. Okay. So making, making sure that uh, if you look at any um, most sporting movements that have got any rotation in there, it's usually generated from the hips. Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, the, the, the thing I always talk to the athletes about is, look, if I'm a boxer and I just stand with totally still hips with no rotation yeah. and I'm just punching from the shoulder, mm. I'm going to get a certain amount of power. But then if I start rotating and using power, you know, um, from my hips and that the hand is just an extension of the hip rotation, it's a significantly more powerful thing. And so, and so as part of the swimming stroke, we just need to make sure that once we've got the body alignment, we've also got, good hip rotation which in turn will rotate the shoulders so shoulders and hips linked rotating to the same amount both sides regardless of whether you're breathing or not now that's a key thing simon hip rotation now how do we generate rotation from the hip rust i'm almost asking you a leading question here <laughs> it, it, it is tough i mean it, it's it's kind of one of those things where Yes, you can force yourself to to move a certain way, but you've got to have something to push against, to 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 have some purchase to be able to uh, to rotate. And so, you know, the in the initial stages when the athletes are first learning how to rotate, that's just got to come from the the feet, you know. So so in order to be able to, you know, if you used to take put your hands by your side and just do a like. Um, a, a, a drill where you're just laying in the water, k- kicking your legs from side, you know, from side to side. Um, then, in order to be able to rotate your hips and your shoulders at the same time, you'll need to put some pressure on on your kick 
on, on one foot in order to be able to exert some movement, you know, because you can't, you can't move without pressing against something. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, the initial, in the initial stages, that hip and shoulder rotation probably comes from a, a downward press of the foot with a relatively straight leg um, to be able to um, get some uh, get some leverage to to turn the body sideways. I'm giggling here, Russ, because what I think we're coming around to is you've got to do a little bit of kicking to Correct. get hip rotation. <laughs> right now, any triathletes listen to this, you know, half of them, their hearts have just sunk because they're going, well... <laughs> I've always been told this stop point and there's no need to kick, you know, because I'm going to be wearing a wetsuit and uh, I want to save my legs for the bike and the run. If you want to swim better, you've got to do some kicking. There's yeah. no, there's yeah. no escape from it. And, the, and, the, and, and there's kicking and then there's kicking, right? So yeah. there's, there's kicking, which is propulsive, which, you know, we, I don't think we need. In no. Triathlon. But then there's kicking that gives you balance. Right which, now, which I think is essential for that rotation and to keep your hips high. Yeah. Now, I remember going to. Uh, I was I was in Melbourne once um, on holiday, and we went to swim at the uh, pool in um, St Kilda. There, you know, the aquatic centre, mm-hmm. the half indoor outdoor pool, and then the indoor one. And Michael Klim was there. Do you remember him? I it, certainly do. Man, he was like he was a two hundred meter butterfly. He used to swim against James Hickman, but he was like a nightclub bouncer. He was huge, yeah, and he was doing some. He was warming up. Um, kicking, he, he was coach was walking along the side by a 50 meter pool and he was hitting 45 seconds, but he was just chatting away 45 yeah. seconds, just yeah. kicking. No, not fly kick, just a, a nice freestyle yeah. kick. And he wasn't yeah. trying. Um, and I, I just remember thinking, God, I'll never be able to kick like that. Yeah. You know, if I go, if I go eyeballs out, pardon my language, <laughs> if I go eyeballs out, I could probably just get under 60 seconds. Yeah, and, that's and then, pretty good. But then yeah. I need, but then I need a rest. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. And, and I think this is where, again, there's a misconception is it's what we need in triathlon is the kicking for rhythm, whether you're wearing a wetsuit or you're not. If you've just got a nice two beat kick to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong here. One, it helps with that rotation, which helps you get a little bit more length at the front end of the stroke yes, because of the rotation. And the other thing is if you've, if you've trained your feet to go up and down gently, then they're not going to kick out to the side and do a scissor Correct. kick. And so you're not creating any extra drag either. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think so. It, there's two or three reasons why I think there just needs to be a basic leg kick. And a real lot of the triathletes still actually still do do a six-beat kick, but it's just not a propulsive six-beat kick. You know, if, if, if you were to take away the arms and just carry on kicking at the rate that they are, mm. they're probably going to be going much, much slower than 60 seconds per 50. You know, it's just... You know, it's just there to to keep your hips high, to to aid with the rotation, and uh, to help with the rhythm. Um, but that you know, there are some of the athletes, without a doubt, that that just do a two beat kick to counterbalance or to give to give leverage to be able to get those hips over each each yeah. side. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, once you then start including the arms in this whole process. Then again, the arms then link as part of the hip rotation, and so the legs become less important. Um, but for me, I think it's really, really um, imperative that at the early stages, when people are trying to improve the stroke, that they learn to have hip and shoulder rotation mm. without their arms. Yeah, that it's a body-driven movement that they just use the feet 
to just get a bit of balance and a, and a bit of rhythm uh, from that. So if and then, and then when you introduce the arm, Simon, then it's a real lot easier because you're not. It's not an arm-driven stroke. It's actually mm. a body-driven stroke, but the arms are assisting. Yes. And that's when you get real efficiency. And that's, you know, when people say, that swimmer there just looks really smooth. What are they doing differently? That's it. That's the thing. It's because they've got a, a body-driven stroke that the arms are assisting rather than just the arms dragging them through the water and the, and the hips and the legs are just hanging on for dear life. <laughs> well, you know, that's quite interesting, actually, Russ. I'm, I swim with a group of... Um, a group of uh, recreational swimmers down at um, John Charles yeah. most weeks. And one of them sent me this article that he'd read the other day. And it was all about, I'll see if I can find it. Um, yeah. Want to see the biggest improvement in swimming, not about getting good at the kick on its own, not about getting a faster round turnover, not about doing the most miles. It's about becoming a full body swimmer, which mm. is just what you've talked about there, isn't it? It's about yeah. using, yeah. but it's it's not about trying hard with a full body. It's actually about letting the full body do its work, but then yeah. trying less hard to get the same, yeah. to get the same swim speed. And and you know, for me as well, there's a lot of age group triathletes who are trying to get faster. Mm. And particularly if they don't come from a swim background. And for me, they might be better off using that energy to be more efficient so they can come out of the water in the same time, having mm. used half the amount of energy. Because if they are if they are a good biker and or runner, then they can use the extra energy to yeah. better effect in the areas where they're accomplished and they have got good and, technique. And, and, you know, and that's kind of like uh, the, the narrative that, that I've had with athletes like Jess Learmonth, you know, because Jess is already in the top one, two, three triathletes from us in the world. Mm. Um, you more often than not, will come out front of the pack. Um, and so what can I bring to her? I, I can't, you know, if I turn around and say, Jess, I'm going to make you faster. Well, she's already as fast as she needs to be, right? Yeah. So, but, so, so my work with Jess has been about being as fast as she is, easy speed. Mm. You know, so so lifting her headroom, you know, so that she can actually do that same level of speed without uh, and get onto the bike fresher. And so that that's what that's what the and you know, that's what we've been doing in terms of really working with the body and 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 less just throwing the arms about. So body position, rotation, and yeah. kick; those are the main things. And swimming for the full body are those the key principles then. Um, well, there's one more that's a little bit more advanced that that I that I really believe in that that I think makes a big difference is yep. that that obviously on the bike and running there's probably a, a, a completely different um, narrative with this, but but in swimming we need to be able to have a really dynamic scapula, or you know, without using posh words, shoulder blades. Our mm-hmm. shoulder blades need to be able to move, and they need to be able to slide. And and what a lot of triathletes do is their their scapula are fixed down mm. you know, from from the tri bar position from the running position, and so they're used to having the scapula fixed down. And so what we actually need is a situation where, so say for example, you can see my shoulders there, the the square, the flat. If I was to put one arm up and keep that shoulder flat. Now, and I say, right, okay, I want my arm to now move up another inch or two. The only thing that can move is my scapula. So, you know, so so if I just go 
hold the shoulder still, just go. Mm. Now you can see my whole arm has moved up two or three inches. Yep. Just by extending my scapula. And now once you've once you've loosened and got that scapula off the rib cage, mm-hmm. it's then a real lot easier to get into that high elbow catch position that everyone talks about. Whereas if your scapula is fixed down against your rib cage, it's almost impossible to, to lift your high elbow, you know. And so we do do a lot of work on teaching the athletes, this is what your scapula is. <laughs> this is how you move it. You know, this is how we get that extra extension. And, and the byproduct of that is obviously that you can, you get an, an extra extra length through your body. And we know that a longer vessel is going to move through the water better. Uh-huh. Um, but also the secondary benefit is that it allows you to get into a, a high elbow position and a good catch a lot easier. Okay. That if your scapula's fixed down. And that's probably a little bit more advanced. I, I understand that, but it, it's certainly something that we spend a mm. real lot of time working on to, to make sure that we've got that extra one percenter. And I would think that for people who are listening that are wondering how they might do that, you'd probably need, rather than us trying to explain the, the drills that they do here, you'd probably need to get your physio involved. So this is where the this yeah. is where having a good relationship with your physiotherapist um uh, really pays benefits because a they'll be able to look at your own biomechanics and see how tight or um you know stable you are around the shoulder and then give you the right drills for you to improve so you've you've touched on high elbow position there um yeah. russ that's the one thing that everybody seems to want to try and achieve and yet struggles to probably because of things like stability around the shoulder and you know mm. tightness um and often we see people doing lots and lots of drills. Mm. I touched on this before. They're trying to do drills. Now, sometimes those drills are not going to have any benefit unless you actually have the, the, the mobility around the shoulders to be able to get in the position. You know, you can't, you can't achieve the impossible like you've just mentioned. Let's say somebody's worked on their shoulder mobility and they, they can, they, they, their body will go into that position, but it just doesn't. Yeah. My, my belief as a coach is, Firstly, before you start doing drills, you need to identify what your flaws are. Yes. And then you need to find a drill that will fix that flaw rather than just yeah. taking six drills and doing them regularly. Yeah. And so then before you understand what your flaws are, you mentioned it earlier, you need to get videoed and you need yeah. to have somebody like yourself help look at that video with you and then say, ah, look, you see what's happening here. Um, yeah. You're dropping your elbow or you're not rotating or you're not kicking. Yes. So, so, um, my position is always seek out a good coach who yeah. can work a video, who can collect that video and then identify where you're weak and then start doing the drills. Yes, absolutely. But I, I do think there are some drills that, the you know, common drills that we should actually avoid. Yes, go on. Um, I'm, I'm really uh, interested now. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, I, I don't think finger trail has got a place. <laughs> Great. Unless unless you've got an athlete who you feel that they are throwing their arms forward too fast, too aggressively, then doing a finger trail drill helps relax the arm recovery and, and actually makes it a recovery. But what we actually want, what, we want to, what we're trying to promote, particularly when wetsuits are on, is armpit clearance over the top of the water. Mm. And so, so, you know, by doing a finger trail drill, 
you're actually encouraging the hands to be close to the water surface rather than up high. Yep. And again, if you look at particularly the elite women, but I would say a large percentage of elite men as well, their hands are up high yeah, over the top. And this is probably one of the first major differences between traditional pool stroke technique mm. and, and open water technique with wetsuits. Um, you know, because we need armpit clearance, we need hand clearance. Mm. And um, and that isn't going to happen by doing finger trail drills. So right. so certainly finger trail is isn't part of of my coaching when it comes to triathlon. It certainly is when it comes to pool swimming. Yeah, but not uh, but not triathlon. And and the second one is catch up. <laughs> so you know, so the the, the catch up drill seems to be just one that's just in just seems to just roll its way into most coaches' toolbox somehow. And uh, and again, I think they're, they're occasionally, in the early stages of a swimmer's development, might be a place for some form of catch-up when you're just trying to get that glide at the front of the stroke established. But certainly once that glide is established, you need to stay away from it like the plague. You know, because what we, what we need is continuous propulsion or as close to continuous propulsion as possible and what catch-up is doing is promoting both hands being the front third of the of the uh of the stroke where there's no propulsion going backwards yeah and, and if so, you haven't got that and if you haven't got that kick in the first place then you're actually going to exactly. slow, slow yourself down aren't you and so again i do spend a lot of time within the triathlon center at leeds teaching the swimmers to get out of catch-up and it's one of the hardest things to do. It is mm. so hard. And so, you know, I always I always say to the academy coaches and the development coaches, for heaven's sake, you know, don't teach a catch-up thing just for a drill to do for the sake of it. All right. Well, let's let's get on to a positive note then. Yes. Um, which which drills do you really like? So I I, I really like straight arm recovery drill. So, yep. so um asking the athletes to as soon as the hand exits the water. Um, to get the hand nice and high um, over the top. Um, I still want the wrist to be relaxed and I don't want the elbow to be fixed, but I want it to be what would feel like a relaxed, straight arm recovery and not swinging around the side though, Simon. It needs to be far away. It needs to be going more high rather than round, if you understand what I mean. And what we're doing by that is we're promoting two or three things. We're promoting a nice hip rotation on the opposite side yeah. because in order to be able to get your hand high in recovery you've got to have a good rotation in your stroke you're also promoting a slightly deeper catch which again is is beneficial um and 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 also i think it it helps athletes particularly athletes that perhaps are not what you would call strong athletes that are more speed through endurance athletes um to to get into a powerful rhythm Mm-hmm. Because the hand's coming from a higher point, and so as it drives down into the water, you know you're getting a, a more power in the stroke. Um, Can I just interrupt you there, Russ? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I understand you're working with elite athletes. They've got, you know, um, they've got a little bit more mobility because they're they're young. Their body's yeah. not tightened up. What about for some of the listeners who are who are avidly listening to this like I am and thinking well I'm a bit tight in the shoulders you know I'm 55 now I've played rugby I'm a bit tight here I can't get that 
I can't get that high arm recovery. I know, I know some of it comes from hip rotation and maybe the reason they can't get it is because they're not, they're not driving the hips. So they're not kicking. So if they, maybe they'll get a bit more rotation if they can do that. But, um, if they can't get that high arm recovery like that, are we mm. just encouraging them to at least try to get their arm out the water, even if it's more out to the side, like that swinging? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I've got to be honest with you, Simon. I've never, I've uh, yeah, obviously on a day-to-day basis, I do coach the the elite athletes that that have got better mobility. But I have I have taught many masters groups with with guys mm. much less less mobile than you, and um, and they can do it if it's taught right. Okay. Okay. So, but you, but you definitely do need to have a slightly deeper glide at the front, yep. and slightly deeper catch in order to facilitate a, a, a higher hand. Uh, yeah, because we're talking like a kayak paddle, really, aren't yeah, we? So, if you lift, if you if you're if you've got a kayak paddle, if, yeah. if the if the part of the paddle that's out of the water is high, the other bit, like like back to Newton's third law, is going to be yeah. lower. Exactly. Yeah. And okay. so, what, what you find is that. Most people, when they're taught to swim, are taught that the stretch phrase at the front of the stroke should be at the surface or just below the surface. Yeah. But the honest truth of the matter is it should be at the depth that your armpit and your hips are at. Right. Okay. So if you think about it, when you go into when your body, if 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 you imagine my hands are your hips and your hips rotate like that, this side of your body is now 12, 18 inches deeper than it was. When it was flat, yes. And so, and so, your your arm at the front of the stroke has got to simulate that and go with it. Right. Otherwise, you, otherwise, your body rotates, your hand stays at the surface, and you get yourself in that acute position again, which which messes up your shoulders, and you can't get a high elbow position. So that um, that makes me think about when you do that drill kick on side. One of yes. the coaching points I've seen occasionally is to keep your hand near the surface of the water. But actually, That's if you're a kicking, terrible on, teaching point. If you're kicking on your side, mm. and you've got you're on your left hand side, your left shoulder, particularly if you've got broad shoulders like a lot of you know triathletes and swimmers, that left shoulder is going to be at least six inches under water, isn't it? Oh, deeper. And, yeah, and so that arm doesn't. If again, if you're trying to get your hands up to the surface of the water, you're putting all sorts of pressure on your shoulder. Yeah, absolutely, um, you're causing tightness in your back. Which, if you're doing it in a triathlon, is then going to translate to tightness when you're riding and running as well. Absolutely, and, so, and that is one of the teaching points that the elite swimmers, right down to master swimmers and and age group triathletes, it's it that is absolutely um, a, a key. Probably, if you say to me, Russ, what's your top three non-negotiables in stroke technique? That'll be in the top three. You know, the, right. the, and when you're doing that kind of arm out, sort of gliding on you, kicking on your side drill, whatever you call it, you know, working on finding that that the point that's that mm. is nice and deep. You know, and again, I would say nine to twelve inches for your younger listeners. You know, twenty-two to thirty centimeters. You know, and and if you actually again look at your underwater footage, if you're looking to get a, a GoPro footage, yeah, when when the body is at full rotation, so when your hand's stretched out and your body's at full rotation, your fingertips should be at the same depth as your armpit and your hips. So if your hips are 12 inches rotated down, 
then your hand needs to be gliding at 12 inches down. So it goes in uh, just as normal, but rather than stretching forwards along the surface, you should stretch it forwards and let it just drift downwards as your body rotates. Okay. So um, straight arm recovery. We like that one. Any other drills yeah. you really like? Yeah. Um, again, well, that one I was just talking about there to work on your hand depth um, is Kick. where we just say you're kicking on your side. Yeah. Um, one arm just up out the way as if it was halfway through the recovery and then kick your legs on the side and then just skull with your front hand up and down from the surface down to maybe 30 centimetres or so, just slowly sculling like this yep. to the surface, back down again and find the point where you naturally feel that you're gliding and you're balanced. Okay. And then once you've found that point, I'll then ask him to do five strokes and then just do the same on the other side. Mm-hmm. And I call it the five-five-five five, five drill with a skull. So it's five seconds, find it sculling, holding your depth, finding your depth, and then five strokes, and then five seconds on the other side with a skull, just finding that depth. And we do a we do a lot of that drill. I do a lot of that drill with kids, with masters, mm-hmm. with elite triathletes, and it and it really does help find that the optimum depth at the front of the stroke. Okay. All right. So we like that one, kicking on side. Um, just just to jump in there, you know, we talked about triathletes not, not being particularly fond of kicking or that good at it. Um, are you okay with using fins as a tool, for, as, yeah. as a tool for, for getting propulsion? Yeah. Yeah. All the drill sets that we do, we, we, do with, we start with fins, and then we transition to no fins, then we transition to full stroke. Then once we got it right in full stroke, then we do it fast. Okay. So it's slow with fins, then transition into no fins, and then slow swim, and then fast swim, trying to hold that that skill over a period of, of the set. Okay, right. Any mother, any more drills then before we move on? Yeah, the only other one that, that there's two or three, but the, the main one I would say, we just call it flick back. So that's just the one where as the hand presses towards the back of the stroke, we recognise that the back of the stroke or the final third of the arm stroke is the accelerated part of the stroke. It's the part of the stroke where you need to put most pressure on. Mm. And some some athletes, if they haven't got the strength or they haven't got the awareness, pull the hand out a little bit short at that point. And so what I say to them is I want you to flick all the way back and imagine that somebody is directly behind you and you're trying to flick water onto their face. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to get a linear flick of water flicking backwards off the hand. And so it's just an exaggerated, exaggerated distance per stroke. Um, And so they're they're the three key drills that we do a real lot of. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to just run through some, uh, it's almost like a yes or no game, this one. So I'm going to run through some common drills that are prescribed by triathlon coaches or that you might see in a triathlon session right so you've 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 been very definite about finger trail and catch up to avoid um you've got a couple in there that you really like and i don't think those are common for most people so i'll i'll run through some of the ones that i'm familiar with um so fists gripping your hands into fists and swimming yes no or maybe yeah yeah definitely i, I like that um i think it's really good to get a a, a good uh, quick high elbow um, we do it with tennis balls rather than fists. Yep. So we just grab a tennis ball between the first finger and the thumb. And I just say to them, put your hand in, rotate the tennis ball forwards and then pull back. But you can do exactly the same thing with fist. Fist in, 
rotate the fist forward, get the elbow up, and then pull back. And what you're what you're doing is you're getting a high elbow and teaching the swimmers to feel the pressure of the water against the forearms as well. So um, yeah, light fist is good. Doggy paddle. Um, potentially, I haven't got a problem with it in principle as long as it's done properly. Okay. You know, so as long as the stretch is at the right depth and not at the surface. Uh, and as long as when the stretch forwards, that they're rotating the hips as well. So mm-hmm. I think it can be a good way to, in, to introduce hip rotation and work on that hand depth. But certainly, if it's just kind of literally doggy paddle, there's no point in that. Um, there's a single arm drill, swim smooth, called it Unco. It's basically yeah. you have your, if you had your right arm by your side, clamped to your hip, you. Yeah stroke with your left arm but you breathe to the right so you, and, yeah. and you breathe every time so you're really um getting the rotation yeah um yeah, yeah any thoughts drill. Yeah, yeah good drill we do do that um maybe once a week um i think it's it's a more advanced drill i certainly wouldn't do it if you're in the development stages of the of, of your of your swimming technique because it, you need to be able to um have hip rotation a good leg kick and you know, before you can, you'll get anything yeah, yeah. from that drill. I can yeah. remember, I can remember Mona Dennison prescribing that for me in a master session and at, at Leeds International and getting it. I got about 20 metres before I had to stop. I felt like yeah. I was drowning. It's However, it's a good drill, but it's a yeah, bad one. I, I would say now, um, what certainly what it does for me when I'm swimming is it really, ha- I I would think that if, if you asked me to swim, I would say to you that my catch on my right side is better than my left side. Yeah. And when I do that drill, I get um, in the 25 meter pool that we haven't used at the moment. I get a length in 11 strokes with my yeah. left arm and yeah. 13 in my right side. So clearly, mm. whilst my perception is that my right arm is is a better catch mm. and a better propulsion, the reality is that my left arm is actually more effective. Yeah, um, and I need to, I, I, I need to. Some... I have to I have to come and have a look at your stroke because I'd be willing to bet your money that it's a scapular thing. I'm sure. I'm sure because this is the arm where I broke my collarbone and I've, yeah. I've just been having treatment today on it. Um, yeah. it. It's just the position of this shoulder in my skeleton is just um, yeah. slightly wonky because of the way I broke my collarbone. But uh, you might be right, but that's exactly where, you know, and for anybody else that's listening, even if you think that there's something that you might, you know, that might be wrong, you need somebody with Russ's expertise and I to be able to look at you and confirm what it is because it could be something else. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Right. Anyway, well, that, consider that a booking then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's let's move on from drills there. Let's talk about building swim fitness. So, because um, yeah. this is where most swimmers want to go, and, and you know, I, I do believe again that the first thing here is just getting the water regularly. You know, don't don't worry about being fancy. Just get in the water regularly, and if you, um, it doesn't have to be big sessions, does it? I'd actually, I'd actually prefer a swimmer to swim. If they did four half hours in a week, I think that's better than two one hours because of the frequency of getting used to the feel of the water. Absolutely, 100% agree. The, the one thing that, that that I look for all the time in, a, in an athlete's programme is, is time at task in terms of you know, feeling the water. And and I, would, I, I agree, I would much rather have four half hour sessions rather than um, you know, one two-hour session or two one-hour sessions, just in just from the, certainly in terms of skill development, and in terms of um, you know making sure that you are then spreading out the, the fatigue that you're developing, yeah, um, better over the three disciplines. 
Um, but yeah, without a doubt, I would say consistency is key. And and also, you know, a big mistake that that a lot of people make in the triathlon world, I think, is just doing a real lot of work in that mid range, mm-hmm. you know, in that kind of like kind of fifty beats below for those guys that are forty beats below the the guys that understand uh, heart rates, perceived effort six seven out of ten. You know, it's just the kind of slogging up and down thing. And uh, and don't get me wrong, there's sometimes when you sometimes you just need to get in, just get your head down and think of England and go for it, right? But um, but but I would say that you're much better, particularly in development stages, of being a little bit more polarized with the training. So uh-huh. so getting good at swimming s- slower, um, you know, which is a really controlled pace, you know, a pace that you could quite easily have a chat with somebody if you were jogging. Yeah, yeah, that kind of pace um, in order to develop aerobic capacity and also to, to really groove the stroke technique that you're trying to get. Um, because as soon as you start going to that mid-range, kind of just sub-threshold kind of pace, you can't really do either. You know, you're using glycogen, so you're not really developing aerobic capacity. And, and also you're working too hard to be able to think about your skills um, and you're kind of in that no man's land. And so I would much rather have three quarters of you swimming at a controlled pace and then do some really specific, fast, short, fast stuff that where you where you can still think about your skills because it's not so long that you become exhausted. Um, and, and once you then master the ability to do good low-level swimming, and good short fast swimming, then we can maybe start talking about that mid range, you know, the threshold sort of zones. Um, but that would that would be my, my my tip for those guys that are just getting into the sport, definitely. So um, I, I I think some listeners will be thinking that I've primed you for that, Russ, because for okay. the last, for the last few years I've been talking about polarized training in in triathlon, how we need to avoid what what. You know, some people call it the black hole. Some people call it no man's land, the dead zone. You know, it's that it's that threshold zone. It's between aerobic threshold and anaerobic threshold. It's sort yeah. of, it's yeah. the it's it's kind of hard, isn't it? It's sort of yeah. hard enough to make you feel like you've had a good workout, but it's yeah. actually not really hard to provoke, you know, um, that extra speed. You know, yeah. and what and and I and it also is hard enough so you don't feel guilty that you've wasted your time when you get home because, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you weren't in the pool, you'd be sweating and breathing hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just kind of, it's kind of swimming. Uh, and I much prefer that almost like 75 to 80% of your time swimming guilty, thinking mm-hmm. I should be going harder. I could be going harder. Why aren't I going harder? This isn't going to do me any good. Um, mm-hmm. And then that other 10% of the time where you're absolutely going um you know, eyeballs out, yeah. like yeah. like you were swimming from jaws. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if there aren't, I've talked about this on podcasts before, and there aren't many triathletes that are willing to do this, but try swimming with a group of sprinters, master sprinters. Mm. You know, it's like going to the track and watching the 100-meter sprinters doing one sprint and then sitting around for 45 yeah. minutes talking. Yeah. You know, these guys will sprint. They'll do 1,500 meters in an hour. Mm. They'll do... If, if it's a 50-meter pool, they'll do two or three maximum 50s and maybe a maximum 100, and that'll be it. And then in between that, there'll be like three or 400 of easy, yeah. very easy. And all you're doing, all you're doing hundreds off six minutes, that sort of stuff. 
I think, um, don't get me wrong, I think there is a place for that threshold type. Yeah. Thing. I think it's further on in, in, in your development. I think it's one of those things where yeah. when you've mastered the skills and mm. you, your stroke's pretty grooved and you know it's not going to break down when, you, when you're in that mid-zone. And um, But also, I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, the, the sessions that we do at Leeds. I mean, the average sort of mileage that we do is about 30,000. Um, so we do five two-hour sessions, and mm-hmm. most of the sessions are about 6,000 metres. And there's only one session of those five sessions where we actually do that threshold-type work. Yeah. You know, the rest of it is either above that pace or below that pace. Yeah. Um, and um, and again, it changes in the season. I understand that. You know, there's going to be times in the season where you really want to be working that system. But I just think as a general rule, um, I think it should be avoided unless you can swim with good skills slowly and then yeah. turn that into good skills fast. Yeah. And then we can start talking about just prescribing a little bit of it. No, I'm I'm totally in agreement there. I, I think, you know, particularly if you're coming into your race and you want some of that sort of conditioning to get used to the development of lactic acid and, you know, teach your body to clear it quickly, I think that's really good. And I think there's certainly anecdotally, and I think there's probably some research to support this, that um, six six weeks of that work, a block of six weeks, you'll get really good response yeah. because you've, you're doing that on top of good, good foundational conditioning. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that tails off. But also... You know, it's mentally going to the going to the pool and doing a, a workout like that's quite hard, isn't it? Yeah, you know, because you're on the you're on the button and you haven't got much recovery. Yeah. So there's only so many sessions where you can turn up and be enthusiastic about that before you yeah, yeah. you start to switch off. So there's um, so I, I think like you, uh, certain periods at certain times of the year for certain things. Yeah, definitely. Now you you t- oh sorry, go on. Go on. Well, I was no, going to say, I do think that there are some athletes that, you know, again, without getting too advanced, we, we certainly do know that there's some athletes that are, are by nature are more explosive. Mm-hmm. And by nature, there's some athletes that are very slow twitch and, you know, can carry on going all day long um, at a certain pace. And so I would suggest that that form of training probably has a, um, a more natural place in a slower twitch athlete's yeah. uh, toolkit. But certainly for most of us, which has probably got a 50-50 split of slow mm. twitch, fast twitch, I think the, the polarised approach, certainly most of the time for most athletes from experience seems to work better. Um, nothing against that kind of mid-range, but, but it needs to be prescribed carefully, I think. Yeah, in, in for swimmers who are uh, used to perhaps understanding swim smooth they they talk about critical swim speed and critical swim speed is around your, your threshold pace isn't it it's supposed to that test is supposed to predict a 1500 meter swim which which probably for your average triathlete is going to take about 30 minutes so it's, yeah. it's the same as doing a 5k or um, somewhere between a 5k and a 10k um you talked about effort levels as beats below maximum now i'm familiar with that i know that swimmers tend to talk about beats below maximum triathletes yeah. triathletes when they're when they're running and cycling tend to talk about things based around this anaerobic threshold so it's critical swim speed in the pool it's functional threshold on the bike and it's it's sort of like you know tempo pace 10k pace on the run yeah. um, and and also we you know swimmers will use best pace 
but but somebody will go well best pace i can only manage that for one so it's best sustainable pace isn't it so there's a sort of there's a like slight nuance in the ang- in in the in the language yeah. um in terms of the endurance swimming um knowing that it's hard to measure heart rate in the pool what what we, when we're doing our endurance stuff what sh- should we be feeling any sense of breathlessness at all or should yeah, I mean, it just be nice? Should it, you know, if, if we were going to be doing, zone, isn't it? It's if the, we were going to be doing zone. a thousand, if we're going to do thousand meter reps or for yeah. anything from four hundred up to a thousand meter reps, yeah. you know, do we want to feel breathless at all during that, or do we want to feel quite quite composed when we finish the repetition? Well, I think a little bit of both, to be honest, Simon. I think I think obviously it, it, we need to be composed and uh, we need to be able to be thinking about what we're doing and be process based with what we're doing. Um, but it needs to be challenging enough, you know, to create some sort of adaptation, doesn't it? You know, so, but it certainly doesn't need to be, you know, where you're, you know, you're bright red and your head's going to blow off and you can't breathe and all that type of stuff. You know, I would say that it's, that it's kind of like the, the, the 50 beats below max sort of zone that we use in swimming for that. Um, you know, as soon as you finish, you could have a conversation with the swimmer. You know, they were, yeah, slightly out of breath, but not really puffing and panting badly. Um, and, you know, if you were going for a jog, that it'd be the sweat zone, you know, where you could have a conversation with your, with your partner, but you'd be sweating a bit, but you certainly wouldn't be, mm. you know, out of breath and and, um, and and feeling like you're going to fall over, you know. so And, and in the R, RPE, if you're looking at that, you know, probably in the middle somewhere, right? You're in the five, six, maybe at, Maybe pushing on to seven occasionally if you're not that fit, or you know if you if you're having a bad day. But I, I, I always look at that kind of five or six out of ten sort of. Sort yeah. Of so if you get to the end of a long rep mm. and you're holding the wall at the end, and your mate comes in, you should be able to start chatting with him straight away. Yeah, you shouldn't be sort of taking you shouldn't be taking thirty to sixty seconds to get your breath yeah. back. Equally, when you're doing the um, the super fast stuff, um, do you? would you limit that to a duration? So rather than saying it's 100 metres, because some people, you know, some masters or uh, triathlon swimmers might take two minutes to swim 100 metres. So would you mm-hmm. be saying, right, let's limit it to a duration of 30 to 45 seconds of effort. So it might be somewhere between 25 and 50 metres mm-hmm. at best pace with equivalent recovery. So you'd be going off, um, if it's taking you 30 seconds to swim 25 metres, you'd be starting every 60 seconds and getting quite a long recovery because you, you really want to focus on swimming hard and fast, mm. not getting the heart rate up. Does that sound right? Yeah, it does. And and with But with, with that kind of fast stuff, I, I do... I, I don't want to get too advanced because, you know, people can get in a muddle with this stuff. But, mm. but I, I certainly see three phases within that. Yeah, you know, I, see, I see the elactic speed, which is short speed, which is three quarters of a, 20 meters, 15, right. 20 meters, yeah. maybe up to 25 if you've got fins on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it should be a distance and a time where if you chose to hold your breath for it, you could do. So it's it's going to be for a lot of people, it's going to be 50, around 15 seconds. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Tops. Yeah. And, yeah. and but it needs to be. Very, very, very fast, but not to the point where you're thrashing it, you know. So it needs to be kind of nine and a half out of ten. I call it easy speed. I know the, um, but I think it's kind of what we're trying to do is it's a neuromuscular thing. And from, you know, and if we're yeah. talking, 
if we're talking physiology, it's alactic. You know, it's it's not long enough to start developing lactic acid, but and it's not long enough to start kickstarting any aerobic metabolism. It's alactic. Just before you go on then to the next bit, and I, I think that's a really important point there is it's neuromuscular. Um, a lot of masters athletes I see, particularly as they're getting older, have have quite a slow arm turnover. Mm-hmm. And the only way to get a faster arm turnover for it to come comfortably is to just swim with a faster arm turnover. Again, going back to the sprinters, I remember sort of doing a session once a week with them and you know we were doing time 25s. And one of the guys who's said to me, yeah, your swimming looks great at that speed, Simon. Yeah, your technique's really good. It's just your arms are really slow. <laughs> and I was like, I couldn't get him out of the water any yeah. faster. And he said, yeah. well, you, you just need to try. But what I found after a few weeks was not only did my arm turnover go up over 25s, it naturally increased a little bit over longer reps as well. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. I didn't, but I didn't actually feel like I was putting more effort in. So back to your point yeah. about, free, about that free speed and easy, yes. sp- easy speed. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, you know, you can do that in there's a couple of really good drills you can do. You can do head-up water polo drill mm. that works really well for that because on that drill, you're only focusing on the first half of the stroke and yep. not the back of the stroke. And so it allows you to really spin your arms a lot faster. Yeah. Um, and um, so, so I would suggest that that should be part of every single session that you do. You know, so, so some, oh, you mean some some alactic work? Some alactic work, and so you know, I would say a minimum a minimum of four four efforts, maybe not no more than eight or ten, but I would say if you're in that range, in my mind, I'm always looking for about 150 to 200 meters worth within a 6,000 meter session. Would you do that at the beginning? Is that is that good as a, you know, once you've done your warm-up, is that good as a build set to prepare yourself for, uh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. or or maybe so. as a, or maybe if you haven't done too debilitating a set, maybe as a finisher, just before yeah. you cool down, yeah? A bit of both. So, so you know, probably what I would do would be maybe do an, an initial 15, 20 minutes of, of building warm-up, aerobic warm-ups, some drills, bit of kicking. Mm. And then maybe do four twenty-fives with fins and big paddles on a minute. Now bear in mind with that elastic stuff, you don't want a build-up of heart rate and a build-up of fatigue. Yeah. So so for before you do the next rep, make sure your heart rate's gone right down again and make sure that you feel ready to go so that you can do it at the same sort of speed again. So that's an important point here. This isn't a fitness developer, this no. is a, a technique and neuromuscular developer. Yeah. And I think that's really really important to emphasize that that you know because yeah. again what i do see is people have got good recovery going right well I'm, my heart rate's down after 10 seconds rest so they go again but you're not going to get the quality are you there because no, the central right. nervous system takes a lot longer to replenish and the honest truth of the matter is you know as triathletes you guys are doing so much endurance work that this is something that just keeps your muscles mm. conditioned and keeps your brain able to send big powerful signals down your nervous system yeah and and um and so, I, like I say, I would probably do four twenty-fives with fin, fins and paddles at the start, at the end of warm-up, just before we go into the main set, or as part of a prep set. And then maybe during swim-down, maybe three or four speed spikes, at the, you know, just before you're finishing. It could be kick. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be swim, you know. And the good thing about that is as well, because it's not too fatiguing, you can actually do some of that work during a recovery week without sort of adding any more fatigue, oh, can't you? Yeah. That's the one thing you don't take out of recovery week. 
Yeah. Okay, right. So we've so we've got a lactic then. So what's yeah, the next? So that's the first, three. first yeah. stage of speed. The second stage of speed. I actually don't know what the official terminology is for it. I call it speed development. Okay. Um, well, well, let's call it speed development then. Yeah. And what we're doing there is we're not. We're, we're just introduce. We're just elongating the that a lactic speed into the very basic start of the anaerobic system. Mm. Um, but not developing a situation where you go into full lactate production. You know, right. so so it'd be something like a typical set on that would be something like uh, a number of of efforts. The first one sprint to fifteen, the next one sprint to twenty, the next one sprint to twenty five, the next one sprint to thirty. You know, so you, you may be going up to twenty five, thirty seconds worth of work. Um. Again, long rest, you know, so that you, you any sort of lactate accumulation that is happening is is being able to be dissipated before you start. And, you, you know, you don't want a situation where you're really accumulating a lot of lactate. But what this allows you to do is just um, be able to get um, to extend your sprinting beyond just a few seconds, you know, and it just allows your body to get used to switching from alactic met- um, metabolism into anaerobic metabolism, but without switching to full anaerobic work, if you understand what I mean. It's just like switching the light on and off to check that it's still there, that the bulb's working, you know. Oh, you're on mute there, Simon. W- would you try and include that in every session then, or is that sort of once or twice a week? No, that's a once or twice a week job. So, so um, over the five sessions that we do, um, we do that twice in the winter phase, um, but only once probably in its competition phase. Okay. Um, so we'd probably do two or 300 metres of it in total, if you add it all up. Um, whereas the alactic stuff, you know, probably half of that. Um, and I would, But I wouldn't do that speed development work until you've done a good, you know, couple of mesocycles, six or eight weeks worth, of work where you've got comfortable with the lactic short speed. Okay. All right. And what about number three then? And so then number three would be all out swimming. So so whether that's, you know, short distance, whether that's medium distance, long distance. Now, the point of this is it should feel all out. It should feel like it's best effort. And so if you're doing something like a number of 50s, uh, well, let's just take a set. Let's just take a set. Say eight, eight one hundreds. Yep. Right. If you was to go eight one hundreds and give yourself work rest one to two, so, right, if so you, double, double the the rest double, is rest, double, double the work, work right? Yeah? yeah, yeah. Then you're going to be going to a, your anaerobic system. You're going to be, you know, going have enough rest to be able to swim fast enough for long enough to develop lactic acid. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you used to then go work, rest one-to-one, then it's probably more like VO2 max, traditional VO2 max training. Yep. And then if you then drop it to perhaps one-to-a-half, then you're going to be more in the anaerobic threshold zones. Yep. So, when, so the only real difference that I... Um, there's no real difference in the perception of how hard the athlete's working. Just the recovery. Just all out. 
it's just all out. And I'm controlling what energy system I'm working them in by how much rest I'm giving them. Yeah, yeah. The instruction is, guys, just let it all hang out. Let's go for it. You know, mm. and and if, again, if you want it on threshold, give them short rest and yeah. make the set a bit longer. If you want it VO2 max, give them one-to-one, make the set a medium-sized set. If you want it all out, nasty, anaerobic, then you give them long rest, make the, shit, the, the set short. And so as a general rule of thumb, I work to 3,000 metres worth of anaerobic threshold 2,000 metres worth of VO2 max and 1,000 metres worth of lactate production work. But bear in mind, that's for people that are full-time athletes, senior athletes that are doing five or six training sessions a week. Yeah, I'm just feeling very tired listening to that. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I've I've done, uh, with with Alan Hutchinson, we used to do, I'd say, probably a set that was two and a half, two to two and a half K. I could cope with that. Mm. Um, once a week on a Saturday morning, yeah. Um, but yeah. for I'd say probably I'd be uh, I'd probably be halving that for most recreational age yeah, And actually, if they do, yeah. if they were to do half of that, they'd be getting a really good stimulus, wouldn't they? Without I totally agree, because that's that's part of the problem is they could do that set. I've no doubt that they have the fitness to do that set, but the fatigue that you um, end up with will lead to, will, will require longer recovery. And then that compromises the next day swimming or the swimming you're going to do in two days. And, that, and that's another of my rules as a coach is yeah. any session that you do shouldn't be so hard that it compromises your ability to do the next session because that Absolutely. otherwise that upsets the consistency that was one of our founding principles right at the very beginning of this call. Absolutely. And I, and I would say that you could quite easily adjust that depending on where you're at in your ability level so those numbers that i'm talking about there you know the thirty thousand meters a week and mm. the three thousand two thousand one thousand that's for your elite pro athlete you know pro triathletes yeah um you know then for you know maybe top age group level you'd probably bring that down by maybe 25 percent you know for your intermediate level maybe 50 percent and your beginner age group is probably you may be only doing a third of that yeah yeah you know, um, and obviously within within the um, within the year there'll be different times where you're doing more of the threshold type, or more of the VO two max type, or more of the uh, the anaerobic type, depending on where you are in the cycle. And we don't want need to get into that, but it, you know, it, it, at some point that does become relevant for those people that are competing and and, and actually running to a periodized cycle. Mm. Um, how do you feel about things like pull boys? And you've mentioned paddles. What do you think about pull boys? Because I see a lot of pull boys being used. Um, yeah, I, I'm okay with pull boys. I think I think it's one of those things where you know we use it properly as a tool. So it's it's prescribed. It's not just don't just stick in a pull boy when you can't bother to kick your legs. <laughs> you know, so so we probably do two or three really good chunks of pull per week, um, and we do pull not necessarily on its own so we'll do pull with a band around the feet oh yeah to make sure that you've got that rotation because often when you stop kicking because it flattens your hips out you'll find that you get lateral deviation you know that the feet sway from side to side yes so what we're trying to do to stop that so we put a band on so that we can still maintain rotation from side to side um and we also do different paddles with that as well so We'll often do say a set of 
three four hundreds. Um, the first one is pull band and big paddles. The second one will be pull band and finger paddles. You know, just the little finger triangles. Mm-hmm. And then the third one will be no paddles. You know, so that you're you're going through the different sensations with your hands. You know, to be able to focus on what you you can feel. You know, I find that using the bands also promotes a slightly faster turnover, which yes. um, uh, is something I'd like to come on to next. Is yeah useful in open water when the water's choppy and you're getting disturbed by other people knocking into your waves currents and all of that sort of stuff yeah so can we um can we talk about i mean i know you've not got a great deal of uh, time in triathlon just yet but you've you've got good observation skills what have you noticed about the differences between swimming in open water and swimming in a pool and um what other factors do we need to take into account for perhaps things that we can do in the pool to prepare mm. ourselves for when when we can go into the lake or the river or the sea? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, without a doubt, that that you just mentioned there about about stroke rate is definitely a thing, and and it's interesting because if you analyse, you know, if you if you look at go to a lot of races or you analyse a lot of races, you'll notice that those guys that are front pack are lead or are very comfortable sitting on the outsides of the of the pack. Assume that the water is a lake and assume that it's not too choppy, they do have or are able to do a similar stroke to the pool stroke. I wouldn't say it was exactly the same, but it's similar because they're not getting interfered with by other people chopping the front of the stroke. They're not worried about whether the hands are hitting the feet in front. You know, because obviously when you put your finger ends in like that, the last thing you want is a, a big heel coming down and hitting you in the fingers. Um and so I have noticed that the swimmers that are used to swimming out in the front or that are really good at getting out of the pack do do a similar stroke, assuming that the water's smooth. Um, but as soon as the water starts getting choppy, I think it's very difficult to hold that kind of long distance per stroke based pool mm. type stroke. Um, and especially if you're in the pack, even if the water is is calm. Um, because you're surrounded by people that are wanting to stop you doing a long stroke, and so so one of the things that that I'm trying to do um, with the athletes in Leeds is to, to give them the toolkit of two or three different styles of swimming, depending on the circumstances. So generally speaking, we've got the pool stroke, which is a lot longer at the front, which you know where if you were to count the strokes, it's a lot lower per fifty than it would be if there was in an open water situation in the pack. So there's that stroke that they're aware of that they can use because we know that if it's just pure speed and there's no interference from anybody else and it's still water, that is the most efficient way to swim. You know, we know that. Um, So as close to the pool stroke as we can get. But then the choppier it gets, then the less time I would advise them to hold in the front of the stroke and that we're trying to get a more continuous propulsion. So as soon as one hand's finished, the other arm's taking over. And so we're not holding that long glide at the front like in mm. a pull stroke. We're actually, as soon as this hand's finished, this one's already pulling. And so, so how it's just do you, one swaps with the other. So how do you teach that then? Because uh, particularly with um, um, less able swimmers than your elites, who've got a good feel for the water and have that um, sort of mm. like are able to sort of, 
introduce technique changes for somebody who's just mastered the you know the pool swim and then you're saying oh actually we need to teach you an open water swim now yeah. um isn't that going to cause a, a little bit of anxiety it's tricky it's tricky but there's a real simple drill which is to use your band only oh yes band only <laughs> or or for those that are not quite ready for that pull boy at the shin rather than um, you know, uh, uh, you know, up high. Um, so, so the best way is the best way, but it's very demanding. Is band only? Yeah, because there's just no way that you can do that long pull stroke unless you're phenomenally freakish. You know, which most of our athletes are. Let's be honest. There's a fantastic. Uh, there's a fantastic video. I think it was by the guys at Swim Smooth, and he he shows what happens. Um, as his stroke slows down, you can start off by seeing the legs are horizontal, and as his stroke slows down, he's he's at forty five degrees, and yeah. he's pretty much vertical in the water. Yeah, um, yeah, well, yeah. So, so we do do quite a significant amount of that, and so we do do race process sessions. So we'll do we'll do a, a dive, we'll do an easy speed uh, easy speed sprint to try and simulate what it feels like to come off the pontoon. Mm. Or, or whatever the start is, um, and then and then we do um, first boy speed, which is often kind of VO two max kind of pace, nine out of ten effort, the best pace you could probably hold for two or three hundred meters, um, which again you know is if you're talking about stroke rate, is probably slightly slower than all out easy speed, but it's up there. The stroke rate is up there, you know, and then. And then we we drop to threshold pace, which is very very similar pace to kind of the back end of races, depending on how long the race is. Um, so so we we do do race process sessions where we're saying right, we're now working in the zone that you need to be in off the pontoon. Right, okay, we've done that now. We're now working in the first boy zone. Okay, we've done that now. We're now working in this zone. And so and then you know I'll throw situations out there and I'll say. Okay, you're swimming like you are if you're in a big pack. Readjust your strokes. You know, make it more continuous. As one arm goes in, the other is coming out. You know, um, and and so it's just kind of creating simulations um, and teaching the difference between the three or four different techniques that they might need to use. When you when you're doing that open water process stuff and you, let's say I, I totally understand because even in age group swimming it's quite frenetic those first two or three hundred metres as everybody's fighting to get off the mark and get a position or get to the first turn um, and I don't think a lot of people do that conditioning where they might they might do a set of say a 400 where they go 200 the first 200 at, at VO2 max pace and then the next 200 at the threshold pace so you're slowing down but you've, you've got to cope with all the lactic acid you developed yeah. and just you know get through it haven't you until you until everybody drops into their cruising pace, so you, you've you basically got to be comfortable until everybody else has, uh, 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 you know. And certainly, in the last sort of six to eight weeks, or the last couple of meso cycles of your periodization, we mm. do do two sessions a week working on those processes, going yeah. through the different paces. So rather than having a threshold set once a week or a VO two max set once a week, we have it all within one session. Yeah, you know, so so they're actually going through the processes. And, you know, uh, sometimes we do that. The closer we get to competitions, we do that in wetsuits as well. Do you, what are your thoughts on how much time uh, swimmers should actually spend in open water versus in the pool? Because I've always 
been of the understanding that the best conditioning comes in the pool because you've got the control, you've got you've got your lanes, you've got your turns, you've got your clock, and you've got your coach there. Whereas in open water, it's sort of you know the distances are never the same. You know you might be swimming into the winds or, or a, a bit of a current, so it's a bit harder. Um, what are your thoughts? I think I'm very much the same as you. I think that the conditioning needs to come in the pool, and the ta- and the tactical awareness comes from the open water stuff that you do. Um, you know, just because you can control what you know what you're trying to get um, in the pool more accurately, um, and you know, at, at the most that we ever do is twice a week open water, but most of the time once a week out mm. of the five five or six sessions. Yeah, and um, and that seems to be adequate. I mean, most of our athletes are front pack. The best ones are front pack swimmers. Um, uh, but there, but without a doubt, there are, there are skills that that happen with the, that you need for open water that you just can't get in the pool. So, I, and and but I do think I I haven't quite been able to work this out, Sam. I don't know if you have, but it may be something to do with the body position because of wetsuits. But because you can't kick, because you float so much higher with the wetsuit on because you don't get as much from your kick and so most athletes hardly kick I don't know if you get there's a little dip in conditioning compared to you know so if you were to do 20 minutes worth of swimming in a pool where you're floating slightly lower your legs are kicking Mm. compared to 20 minutes open water where you're slightly higher with a wetsuit on um, and you don't have to kick very much. I'm just wondering if it's something to do with that. I mean, I could be backing up a complete wrong tree there, but I do think there's an intensity of, of focus that you can get in the pool on quality work. You mm. don't seem to be able to get open water. No, I, I think you're right, Russ. It's, it's a good observation. And there you see, that's that. The, the observation skills of elite coaches. <laughs> um, uh, I think I think there's a couple of things there. Um, one is, yes, definitely the not kicking as much, you know, um, swimming at the same pace in a wetsuit is always easier, you know, mm. swimming at, 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 you know, if, if, if for an age group, it's like 130 per hundred pace, it's probably a couple of percentage points easier to swim at that pace with a wetsuit on because of the buoyancy. Um, and obviously the lack of kicking. I, I do also think now, and this is one of my big bugbears about when I see club swimmers going down to the lake is that they, put their wetsuit on and then they just swim laps and they get a really good endurance mm. session, but mm. they're not doing any of those things that you've just described. They're not, they're not learning to do turns. They're not, they're not sort of simulating some race starts where there's six of them huddled together, mm. kicking and bumping each mm. other and just getting used to the fact that nobody's trying to deliberately beat you up. They're trying mm. to just get swimming and you're just in the way. And, and, you know, and it's just inevitable that there's going to be collisions and, you know, you're yeah. going to get banged on the head and somebody's going to tap your feet. But we all we all get angry about that and mm. stop getting frustrated. And that causes the heart rate to go higher. So I think that's one thing. Um, mm. There's those skills like drafting, like sighting that you can do much easier in the lake. Um, but I don't see people taking the opportunity to do that there. So the nearest similarity they have to race preparation is... I get wet and I wear my wetsuit. And even then, they don't come out of the water and practice getting the wetsuit off quickly. They sort of come off and strip it down to the waist. And then they spend half an hour chatting about, did you did you swim around there? What was it like? Yeah. So yeah. I, I think if you if you convince yourself that you're swimming open water twice a week and you're swimming six, you know, three K each time, 
um, you're going to lose your fitness yeah. because, because it's just plodding away. And, and so I yeah. think it is important, you know, like, yeah. so, you know, I, you know, I think there is value in, in, in just swimming and getting to a rhythm and all mm. that. I understand that. And mm. so I'm not saying don't do that, but I think, you know, if you've got a, an hour and a half session or an hour in the, in the open water, you know, make use of it by, you know, once you've acclimatised and once you've, you know, you've done some basic capacity work and you've, and you've got used to the water, you know, do some speed spikes, you know, do some fast swimming, you know, get yourself in some groups and, you know, get yourself going around boys, you know, changing directions. Mm. And you know, just as a bit of fun, but it actually has become quite a useful tool. You know, when I set the the athletes off in groups, I'll just have a quiet word with one of them and I'll say, I want you to be a disruptor on this rep. And so I just make them be a complete pain in the backside. You know, swimming into people, you know, swimming over people, cutting in front of people, just being a like a, a typical, you know, or, or, a, or a bad triathlete, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, so trying to make them, you know, so the others are having to overcome that and having yeah. to get used to someone being right on the hip or touching the toes every time that the you know, you put your arm forwards or cutting right in front or whatever. And And so I think that works quite well. You know, because quite often they don't know who the disruptor is. They just know that they're in a in a in a group, and the group's banging into each other, and and it's and it's a problem. But the honest truth of the matter is, yeah, maybe seven races out of ten, you'll have a smooth run, and it'll be great. And you think this is easy, and then then suddenly you'll get in a group, and and you'll get absolutely battered. And it's how you deal with that. And yeah. if you speak to any of the big name triathletes, they'll all give you experiences where they look back on a certain race where they thought they were going to drown, mm. you know, because, you know, they were held underwater for a period of time or they had to swim through a tunnel and, the, and the, it was black and they couldn't navigate and, you know, all sorts of stuff like this, you know, some of the best names. Um, so I think it's really important that, you utilise the open water sessions for real tactical um, uh, competency and um, and not just plopping up and down. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the themes that we've seemed to have touched on a lot here is that all of the things that triathletes use, you know, swimming in open water, the little swim tools, the paddles, the pull boy, the fins, you know, even the floaty shorts, if you like, um, and some of the drills and the different paces, they've all got a place, but they need to be, they need to be there for a reason. And, and you just mentioned that um, word several times is their tools, mm. the tools to help us swim better. However, and if I'm, I'm going to summarize now, Russ, so tell me if I've, if I've missed the plot here, but it seems to me that the most important thing and, and certainly the key thing that you look for as a coach and the first thing is body position. Yeah. So we're looking at, you know, your alignment in the water and what you call aquatic alignment. Yeah. Yeah. Once you've done that, we're looking for some rotation Yeah. around the hips and that rotation originates from being able to push against something. And that is the foot. So that is, that is some sort of kick. Yeah. Okay. And I, I know a lot of people will be yawning and rolling their eyes and going, Oh no, you know, I don't like to kick, but really you're actually, sort of limiting your potential as a swimmer if you don't kick. And and I think you touched on it, Russ, that we're not looking for kick for momentum. We're not looking for a Michael Klim or a Phelps style kick. What we're doing is looking for balance yeah. and something that's going to help us with with the rotation and the and the reach at the front end. Yeah. Um 
you've touched on some good drills that we should do and some that we should avoid, which will probably raise a few eyebrows. And But again, find drills that help you to work on the particular floor that are an elite, you know, an expert coach has identified. Um, I really appreciate the fact that you mentioned the polarized approach to sort of like swim nice and easy, get your groove, get your rhythm, get your stroke, and then do some really hard stuff. And I like, and I like the, uh, you know, the three definitions of speed there, the A-lactic, very short sprints, long reps, um, the speed developments are slightly longer and um, the all out stuff and, uh, um, you know, where you should place that in the season. And then, you know, if you want to, if you want to get better at swimming in the open water, actually spend most of your time in the pool becoming a better swimmer and then go to the open water venue that you choose to swim at once a week with your mates um, go with a specific purpose of course yeah. you know if it's a nice evening there's nothing nicer than swimming in lovely clear water with the sun on your back but mm. remember that the reason you're really doing it is that you're trying to prepare for a a triathlon in open water so you really and, and these opportunities are limited for most people so make the most of it absolutely yeah and use you know as a general rule you know in my head uh, i like to see the pool sessions as the conditioning stuff and yeah. the and the physiology and the open water stuff as the tactical mm. brilliant russ it's been fabulous you've uh, you've definitely put a few things to bed there um i'm sure there'll be some debate and you know um we we talked earlier about this uh, this there's more than one way to do this but um absolutely y- you've yeah. you've given us a great foundation to work from there so i really appreciate your time thank you very much for coming on the show oh no simon and thanks for inviting me and and uh mate this is really good what you do here and uh and i'm i'm really grateful for people such as yourself that are trying to bring standards up and um so good on you and and and, uh anything i can do to help any of the listeners you know by all means get in touch well maybe what we'll do russ is we'll see if we can put a russ barber swim clinic on in leeds eh? hey why not yeah all right for now russ thanks for being here um, yeah. we'll share your links and where people can get in touch with you on the show notes um so appreciate you being here great stuff thanks for the time thank you to russ for being on the high performance human podcast as usual there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below please don't forget to subscribe to the show on itunes and if you can please leave a rating and a review and also please think about joining our High Performance Human Podcast Facebook page. You'll find a link for that in the show notes as well. All right, that's it. So have a great week and I'll see you on the next episode.